Welcome to Investment Magazine's new podcast series entitled The Future of Super, an in-depth series of conversations with key decision makers, leaders, agitators, and stakeholders in policy, regulation, and from within the industry. At a time when the superannuation system is being asked important questions about its purpose, efficiency, and ability to deliver appropriate member outcomes. We will be exploring topics vital to those responsible for governance, operations, and investment outcomes of funds through this series of conversational style interviews. Please visit investmentmagazine.com.au or get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. AIA Australia is a leading life and wellbeing specialist with nearly 50 years experience and a commitment to help Australians live healthier, longer, better lives. Visit aia.com.au to find out more. I'm joined today by Luke Barrett, General Counsel at Unisuper and David Gallagher, a visiting fellow at Rosetta Institute. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Matt. And, um, it's great to see David, and look, I, I didn't know this was going to be an audio-only recording, and so uh, David and I have shown up in uh, resplendent in our tuxedos. Good to see you both um, in your tuxedos. Yeah, look, <laughs> for the benefit of the people listening, you know, I must say, David, your your your, your cummerbund is magnificent. Thank you. So are you. Nice flat tie. Fantastic. Look, I'm really looking forward to today's discussion because I think it really goes to the heart of some of the challenges and indeed opportunities the superannuation industry is facing into as it reaches a point in its maturation, but also a tipping point in terms of its size and influence on the local and global capital markets. David, I wanted to bring you in first, if that's okay. You've been writing some interesting articles and addressing some of the um, considerations confronting asset owners in light of their engagement with companies they invest in. This discussion about concentration of ownership in companies among local super funds is a live one. Do you think it's a real issue? Uh, look, I mean, just based on the projections that you see even from, say, the intergenerational report that was released recently, um, you know, super's now $3.3 trillion in size uh, and it's projected in 2061 to be about $34 trillion mm. from obviously growth of assets and um, contributions, et cetera. So what, what, the, uh, what the highly likelihood is is in terms of listed equities, uh, you're going to have an increasing uh, concentration of ownership. Um, one thing that we probably need to say here is um, there is a there is a difference between concentration and common ownership. Mm. So obviously, if you own more and more and more of a stock, uh, you're going to have much more uh, voting rights than you would otherwise have. Um, but what we're going to see is super funds are going to there's going to be more assets. There's going to be likely fewer funds. And there may be the perception there that um, super funds could be potentially ganging up together. Um, I'm not certain that they would uh, in terms of collusion, but there is the perception that you're going to have yeah. a, a concentrated nature of, of, of people that vote uh, when when companies go to an AGM. Uh, is it a good thing? Well, um, it's highly likely that even though we have home bias in in our marketplace, where that is, there's a disproportionate amount of money that's invested in the local local economy. Mm. Um, super funds will 
naturally need to go looking elsewhere for assets if they're going to become very dominant on the ASX. And so you're going to probably see much increased ownership of private assets uh, as well as increasing asset ownership offshore. Mm. Yeah, it does feel like we're kind of on the precipice, doesn't it, of this transition from, um, you know, a sizable but in the course of history, maybe a, a small-sized industry compared to what we might grow towards. There's a parliamentary inquiry into this concentration, you know, and potential inverted commas collusion coming up. What What do you think this inquiry might find and, and what could it do? Like what outcomes could it create? Well, my hope is that the review is um, hopefully not going to be partisan, but the whole key here is to make sure that... Uh, that the best interests of Superfund members are looked after. Mm. Um, there is a lot of research, empirical research, that shows that governance is an important uh, input in terms of holding management to account or certainly boards of directors and then management to account. Uh, and so it's it, fiduciaries, et cetera, with superannuation funds, they, they have every right to look after the best interests of their members and that requires them to... Uh, to to follow up with um, appropriate um, governance oversight. And so, uh, naturally speaking, they should be voting their shares. Um, in terms of the other outcomes of the inquiry, that's, that's still to be seen. Um, the main thing is that hopefully ideology is not part of this review. Mm. Luke, would love to get your thoughts there. Do you think funds have too much influence in the local market? Well, look, the answer to the question, do they have too much influence? Um, look, definitely not, in mm. my opinion. But before we move on to influence, you know, listening to your and David's conversation there about concentration, I think it's worth teasing out a few things. Mm. Um, if there's going to be committee inquiries looking at these topics, um, we, mustn't, we mustn't blur concepts. Uh, so on the one hand, uh, I mean, people might want to talk about the, the level of concentration either now or in future. Um, but I think blurring that with ideas of collusion and the like mm. is unproductive. Mm. Uh, look, I'm not, from where I sit, I don't, I don't see any indication of collusion. Um, quite the contrary, in, a, in an environment where more and more superannuation funds are managing portfolios internally, uh, there's actually a strong desire to, to be on market, able to trade, able to exercise your votes on, um, you know, um, significant transactions and the like. Uh, and the last thing you want uh, is, you know, on account of, you know, colluding, which I think is an unhelpful word, yeah. uh, becoming an associate of other actors in the market, which can actually put you on the bench. And you you're off market, you can't trade and you can't vote on transactions that matter to your holdings. So I think um, conversations or discussions about you know, the associations between different participants in the market is actually quite different from the question of, uh, you know, whether the level of concentration is appropriate or not. And if we're going to talk about concentration, I think there's a really important question about, well, what's the counterfactual? What's the alternative? If concentration is being seen as an outworking of the, the growth of the superannuation sector, um, you've got to ask yourself first, do we have a problem with the superannuation sector getting bigger or not. Now, I don't hear a lot of people saying that, that people have too much money saved away for retirement. Most of the discussion seems to be about more people need to save more for their retirement. And if that's the, uh, if that's the end, 
um, you know, more people having more saved away for retirement so they can have a comfortable lifestyle uh, when they retire, which we all hope that we can one day, um, well, it follows that the sector is going to be bigger. And if the sector is bigger, if there's more funds under management in the sector, uh, you know, you, you can't put it under your mattress. Mm. It's got to be invested. And so questions about concentration then become, it's really a conversation about what are superannuation funds to do mm. as their level of funds under management get bigger, which I think everyone would agree needs to happen. I think it's in the national interest that the sector gets bigger. And if if there's going to be, if, if there's talk of limits on how much superannuation funds might hold in a particular company or particular companies, look, I, I think that's interesting from a couple of point of views because firstly, if super funds can't invest in their first preference, well, it follows then that they're going to be investing in their second and their third preference. And there's a lot of talk these days about acting in the best financial interests of members. And I think it's quite ironic that in the same era when we're talking about acting in the best financial interests of member, there's even this conversation which seems to be leading down a path where someone's going to tell super funds that they can't invest in their first preference when it comes to investment decisions. And, and then secondly, if superannuation funds aren't going to be permitted to have the holdings that they would otherwise desire to have in the best financial interests of their members, who's going to take their place on the share register? I mean, I think that's a really important question. Um, I mean, it wasn't so long ago. I mean, go back, wind the clock back a decade after the GFC and superannuation funds were being credited almost as, as the white knights of the, the aftermath of the GFC, providing stability to the Australian stock market mm. um, you know, with the uh, compulsory flows into the sector on the back of mandatory superannuation savings. Super funds were deploying into the market during volatile times and actually provided stability. So you take that out of the equation, I'm not sure if we've made the world a better place. And, you know, who's going to take up the, those holdings? And, if the suggestion is, is that having other institutional investors, possibly foreign sovereign wealth funds, coming onto the share register and taking over the holdings that were previously there for the best financial interests of Australian superannuants, I'm just not sure whether we've made the world a better place. Yeah, and I guess, you know, we are probably reaching this this tipping point, right, where the questions are being asked about concentration because you know, of the size of local pool of assets and, and you know, looking forward how, how large that kind of pool can get. And David obviously spoke about some of those numbers. The question is, can the industry discharge its duty? How is it investing? And I think proxy voting seems to sit at the centre of, of that. What are your thoughts on the way in which super funds execute their proxy voting and could it be done better? So um, we, we talk about influence mm. um, and I guess at the outset, when you talk about shareholders uh, exerting influence through their ownership, uh, I guess there's two kinds of influence that you can exert. And one, as, as you rightly point out, is through your proxy voting. Um, and secondly, is through your engagement hmm. with the companies. Uh, now, stepping back and looking at the, the industry as a whole, um, I definitely don't think it's a case of the industry having too much influence. Um, I actually think the uh, it, it's entirely appropriate for institutional shareholders, and I'm not just talking about superannuation funds, I, 
I think it's entirely appropriate for any owner of a company to exert the level of of influence uh, which is commensurate with their level of ownership. And I think the counterfactual is actually a lot worse. I think the idea of uh, having owners of listed or unlisted companies um, taking their eyes off the road Mm. and taking their hands off the steering wheel and exerting less influence than is commensurate with their ownership uh, is actually a lot worse. I've recently, uh, look, with the, with the lockdown uh, in, in, in Melbourne and Sydney, I'm, I'm making the most of the opportunity to uh, work my way through my bookshelf, mm. revisiting some old friends and, uh, you know, and finding some new ones up there as well. And uh, I've recently read uh, Jack Bogle's book, uh, The Battle for the Soul of Capitalism. And that, that book's about 15, 20 years ago now. Uh, now. And he was reflecting on what he was seeing um, as the problem with capitalism in the United States back then. And uh, he, he recounted a litany of sins and um, Bogle saw as one of the, the main problems in the US was uh, an increasing part of the share register was taken up by institutional owners uh, who either weren't voting mm. their shares or when they did vote, they were conflicted because the institutional owners also uh, generated advisory revenues from the the companies which they invested in, and he saw that as a you know as a major problem. Um, so you've got capitalism is based on mm. owners putting up capital, which is at risk and should generate a return for the owners, uh, and you know management and boards should be accountable to the owners. And he saw it as a, a great problem over there that. With you know, you know, mum and dad, or mum and mum, or dad and dad investors being ousted uh, off the share registers increasingly by institutional investors who who, who weren't exercising their rights yeah. of ownership. Yeah. And look, um, and Bogle Bo- Bo- had a quote in there, and he was talking about you know his view of the U.S. situation. And you know, Bogle's quote was, "When you've got strong management, uh, weak boards, and passive owners." Yeah. That's when the looting begins. Yeah, uh, and when it comes to Australian superannuation funds, um, as we stand today, it's actually the exact opposite of that. I, I think uh, I, I think if Bogle was here today, he would look at the approach taken by Australian superannuation funds and see that as the exact opposite of the problems which he saw in the US when he wrote that book. And uh, he's got a whole chapter in that about what needed to change in America to turn the situation around. And I think that's actually what Australian superannuation funds are doing because they're not passive owners. They haven't taken their eyes off the road. They haven't taken their hands off the steering wheel. They, they exercise their rights of ownership and, they, and, and they're not conflicted because of the sole purpose test. Super funds aren't there generating advisory revenues from the, the listed companies they invest in. So uh, you actually have, uh, you know, active uh, you know, owners of capital, actively exercising their ownership rights in a, in a non-conflicted way, um, either with the, the benefit of uh, external input on how to exercise their voting rights or increasingly with their own internal expertise. Well, while we're talking about it, where are we, do you think, on that journey? Because I know recently 
we've kind of arrived at a place of some combination, as you alluded to there, of an outsourcing as well as a bit of an insourcing of those voting duties. You know, and some of that outsourcing can lead to what appears to be a bit of harmonising of views among superannuation funds. Well, as um, funds get larger, and Luke mentioned also the increasing propensity of super funds to internalise their operations, um, super funds are becoming much, much more sophisticated than they were, say, 15, 20 years ago. Um, They have the capacity now being actual fund managers themselves to actually being across the management issues of companies and how companies are performing and and certainly when it comes to the resolutions that need to be voted on at board level, uh, fund managers, well, being fund managers themselves with internal teams, they're uh, much more capable of being across those issues and they also have the requisite uh, economies of scale as well. But um, irrespective of that, you have obviously proxy firms that, that are, their sole purpose is to, is to provide recommendations to asset owners around uh, how to vote, how they vote should be uh, registered at the AGMs. Um, look, I think, I think increasingly you'll find that proxy voters, proxy voting organisations will still be important in the process, but I think they'll become less, less relied on, I think, by some of the large super, fund, um, super funds themselves, given that they are increasingly large and that they are have a, have a strong capability of assessing the viability of the companies in which they own. Um, I think the thing, though, when it comes to proxy voting is, is it's really important that a super fund executive uh, is able to use the proxy information to advise them about their, their decision-making rather than uh, feeling that there's a dictation of, well, if I don't vote in accordance with one of the proxy advisor companies, then I need to have a really detailed reason as to why I'm voting counter to what has been recommended. Um, I think it's, you know, it's really important and it's in the interest of members that super fund executives uh, have the freedom to be able to either elect to follow the advice that a proxy firm provides, but also to have the uh, freedom to be able to counter uh, decisions. And then we wouldn't expect, I think, that proxy firms, would that their recommendations wouldn't be followed very often. I think they usually are and there's good reasons why they are, but but I certainly wouldn't want fund managers, super funds as fund managers essentially to not feel that they can go against what the pro- recommendations of a proxy firm happen to be. How does it look like from within your fund? I mean, I know Unisuper obviously is the fund in the market that probably has the most internalised, you know, investment management in the industry. Well, from what I see, I'm really confused by the debate, Mm. to be honest. Mm. Um, I think it's, I mean, if if the debate was whether or not there should be more proxy advisory firms in the market, um, you know, if the view was that we need more firms out there, um, you know, giving recommendations whether to vote for or against, that would be a different topic. But I think the... The debate which is playing out is whether or not certain superannuation funds are allowed to receive advice from particular uh, advisors that have particular ownership structures, uh, which which I think is a different issue. Um, I, I think it's not. Uh, I think 
if, if that's what it's about, we've drifted away from what I think might be a meaningful debate about whether or not there needed to be more competition and more service providers in that market. Mm-hmm. Um, look, the other thing that I find confusing as well is uh, it's not the case, um, certainly not for uh, the funds that I've advised in, in, in the past, um, you know, that, that, that funds are beholden to vote in line with whatever their service provider has told them. Um, so that's that's fiction one. You know, f- fiction one is that funds have to vote the way that their advisor recommends that they do. Um, and the second fiction is, is that superannuation funds only get access to one advisory firm's recommendations. That's just not true. Um, I mean, even um, funds like ours, we're not entirely insourced with our portfolio management. Uh, you know, most funds still have numerous uh, external fund managers as well. Uh, now, all of the external fund managers, typically they receive uh, proxy voting advice themselves from a, uh, from a combination of external sources and from their own internal teams. Uh, and that information all filters through to the superannuation fund investors. So for the large funds uh, that have uh, you know, an array of external fund managers properly advised internally and externally, there's actually a number of inputs. So it's not just the recommendations coming into the internal portfolio managers um, from their chosen proxy voting advisor that they're not bound to follow, uh, but they've also got the benefit of hearing the thoughts of the external fund managers who are still there, uh, who are still uh, providing input onto how they're planning on exercising the proxy votes attached to the shares in the portfolios that they still manage, Mm. uh, which leverages the expertise of their internal teams and their external advisors as well. Yeah. David, um, I mean, Luke's a little exacerbated, I think, by the the discussion. Is it because the, the, you know, what he alluded to then is perhaps that ideological issue, that ownership issue around proxy firms by industry funds, is the confusion because it's ideological and it's not a practical issue? It, one, one would look at it as, as that's the case, that it's highly likely to be ideological. But um, I'm being, being academically inclined, I, I'm also interested in what the, uh, what the empirical evidence says. Um, mm. and, and similar to what uh, Luke was saying earlier, um, I mean, super funds these days are highly sophisticated investors. They have mountains of money that they're responsible for. They, you know, a lot of them run internal teams. They're across all the issues. They hire good people. Uh, you know, I think I think that um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of ideology in this debate, um, and certainly I think uh, it's unnecessary. The um, it's one thing to question. Uh, an issue and say here's a problem because the, the facts say this, but I don't see that there is a problem um, at this present time. It's um, and it, look, it's can I just call out a like a, a quite a remarkable irony? Um, if you wind the clock back twenty years ago, um, I remember twenty years ago when um, the push was that superannuation funds as fiduciaries, as trustees, duty-bound to act in the best interest of their members, uh, the view was that they weren't doing enough to exercise their rights of ownership. So uh, the debate, the ideological debate 20 years ago was that more superannuation funds needed to do more to exercise more of their votes. 
And I remember back then I was in private practice and I was working with a number of funds and what they were doing was rolling out uh, their proxy voting policies across all of their external fund managers. Uh, and look, that was actually meant to shift where superannuation funds went from allowing their external fund managers to vote or not vote or to abstain as they wished to actually making it a contractual obligation for every fund manager to vote on every resolution around the world. And so 20 years ago, it was superannuation funds aren't exerting enough influence. Uh, and they took that on board. Uh, they responded. Uh, they, uh, and they started voting. And they put effort into making sure that their voting was exercised in a considered way by building out internal resources, by sourcing external advice where required. And they've done that. And now it's like Groundhog Day and you know, 51st dates, and <laughs> we're, we're asking ourselves the question, well, oh, are, they, are they doing too much to exercise yeah. there? At AIA, our dream is to champion Australia to be the healthiest and best protected nation in the world. To achieve this, we are continuously innovating to develop and deliver customer-led life, health and well-being propositions that help people live healthier, longer, better lives. To find out more, visit aia.com.au. Let's shift gears a little bit. I mean, um, we've all seen the trajectory of the superannuation fund assets uh, growth. I mean, I think we can all agree, and David touched on it, I think, at his opening, that um, it's not all going to continue to be invested with the local bias that it is today. Funds will need to and, um, you know, will find it advantageous, obviously, to to look overseas to invest. So, Luke, um, how do you see that? kind of playing out as funds get bigger, to what extent will the global markets really open up to Australian funds and, and how's that playing out at Unisuper? Well, well, funds have always invested yeah. overseas. Um, so, and I think, uh, look, Dave, 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 David's the academic here, but I think when you look at the typical strategic asset allocation for a balanced option today, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I don't think that we're seeing substantial changes in allocations to uh, offshore markets, except in a tactical sense. Hmm. Um, so I, 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 I think as the um, I think as the superannuation gets bigger, to the extent some funds have strategic asset allocations to unlisted assets and unlisted infrastructure, as the sector gets bigger, it's going to be it's going to be harder and harder to fill those allocations domestically. Yep. I think increasingly there will be, uh, you know, there'll be pressure and the desire to look offshore. Yeah, and one thing we haven't really touched on is is private markets. I think as a, a default, been talking a little bit about public markets. David, how do you see the the overseas trend playing out? And and in addition to that, to what extent um, will the private markets play a, a bigger role? Yeah, um, just before I get to that, just just following up from Luke. Luke's right where it's not just the super funds in Australia are getting bigger, uh, and that they're investing, you know bigger fractions of their wealth into local listed equities. You've got um, sovereign wealth funds, as Luke mentioned, and you've even got the very large Canadian and other pension funds that are wading through our markets as well. So it's not like there's going to be um, a very, very high, or sorry, very small number of participants with large positions in our companies. Um, you know, but, but just to your, your question there, um, naturally, we're, always, we're always going to see a home bias. It's, it's just prevalent across um, every country where, where there's a bias to your home market. Um, there's good reasons why that is. Um, but but as, as you get 
as you, as your asset pool gets larger and it's chasing a smaller number of uh, of options in, at home, obviously you're going to be needing to go offshore. Now, Australia is only a bit over 2, 2% of the total world's asset pool. Um, compared to, say, America, which is about 50%, our opportunities offshore are obviously much greater given that we're only coming from a 2 and a bit percent um, allocation in terms of what our market represents. Um, but I think... I still think you'll you'll see a home bias. Uh, hmm. You'll obviously see an increase uh, in the unlisted portion of of um, of ownership. Uh, so so that's interesting. Um, but you'll also see an increased allocation to to global opportunities. Yeah, it'd be remiss of me not to to bring it up. I mean, this kind of take private. Um, you know, is there concern that you know some everyday investors might be perhaps left out of some of these deals? Look, I, I think it's uh, it's important to realise that wherever you see a superannuation fund investor, you're actually seeing a trustee who's making the investment on behalf of a whole lot of ordinary Australians that are saving for their retirement. Yeah. Um, if you take, and, and this is important to call out, like if you take a superannuation fund out of, an, out of an investment opportunity and you put in some other institutional investor, other institutional investors might have concentrated ownership. You might have people in there who own 10% or 20% of, uh, or, you know, of the bidder. Um, and that's very different from having an Australian superannuation fund where everyone is a retail client. Hmm. No one has a significant holding in a superannuation fund. You don't have anyone having, you know, a 5% or 10% ownership stake in a super fund. Um, because when you've got funds that have got, you know, $100, $200 billion in it, you just don't have individuals who've got a $5 billion uh, account balance in their, in their superannuation account. So superannuation funds are actually the perfect vehicle for ensuring broad-based access mm. and enjoyment of the fruits of these investments. You know, it's been a fascinating conversation. We're drawing to a close, but I did promise listeners that we would get to how, you know, fiduciary duty that superannuation funds have to their members might intersect and and interact with some of the other broader, you know, societal duties that, that they may have. I mean, to what extent do funds have an obligation to, to broader community interests? Superannuation trustees... Uh, have always been under an obligation to make their decisions, in particular their investment decisions, in the best financial interests of their members. Mm. Uh, so the, you ask, well, what about broader societal considerations mm. and the like? Well, um, it's very topical now, but the law hasn't changed. To the extent those societal considerations uh, you know, represent an op opportunity or a threat to the investment returns, from the superannuation funds portfolios, uh, they've always been able to and they always should be taking them into account. Um, I think where it's, uh, um, where it's important for there to be this broad understanding uh, in the industry between funds and their membership is that um, that doesn't mean that it's ever been appropriate for important financial decisions to be made, uh, you know, on... on, on, on yeah, other than through a comprehensive financial analysis. Yeah, you know, UniSuper's just kind of come out and um, uh, talked about its uh, net zero aspirations and there's a lot going on 
you know, in the industry broadly around, you know, managing portfolios with that climate risk in mind. Is that one of those examples that, that it just happens to tick both boxes, the financial interest, as well as what appears to be a broader societal interest? That's correct. And look, and the team's really proud of what they've been able to achieve. I mean, as far as we're aware, uh, Unisuper is one of the, the largest Australian investors in sustainable strategies. Um, we've exited all of our investments in companies that derive more than 10% of their revenue from thermal coal, uh, and we're on track to be uh, net, net zero by, um, by 2050. Um, and look, for, for many years now, we've offered our membership the choice of seven different investment products, uh, which are completely fossil fuel free, uh, and you know, those products are run true to label. And Look, every, all the decisions that we've made in all of our portfolios have been made in a, in a, in a very considered way, um, you know, having regard to the threats um, you know, posed by you know, decarbonisation and, and climate change and the like. Um, and, and every decision's been made by investment professionals in, you know, in a very considered way. And uh, it's not just a decision. It's not, it's not a binary decision to, uh, you know, get out of everything or go long everything all in one go. I mean, these are considered investment decisions about, you know, um, you know, whether to reduce exposures, if so, to what extent, when, how, in what sequence, um, and those decisions are being worked through. And, look, we're very – our most recent climate change reports um, are hot off the press, um, and, look, the team's proud of what they've been able to achieve and our look-through exposure to – uh, fossil fuels is, um, you know, has come down, and it's it's uh, it's it's a very low two and a half percent now. What are the some of the considerations, David? You think funds have in this area when it comes to the fiduciary duty, obviously, of their members, the best financial interests, and then what seems to be the evergreening of the superannuation industry? Yeah. So as Luke said, um, super funds, as you know, they need to follow the law. The law hasn't changed. They've got to obviously do what's in the best interests of their members financially. Um, there has been a lot of debate around, uh, you know, to the, I mean, obviously APRA requires climate to be a consideration for funds and so naturally they they are taking that into consideration and account in how they manage their assets. Um, the real issue is with the whole sort of ESG, this sort of greenwashing debate, if you want to call it, is do sort of environmental, social kind of causes actually provide, using empirical, you know, empirical evidence, do they really provide the best financial outcomes for members? Um, so, so the key thing there is this is funds have to obviously act in their best in the best interests of the members. Uh, they must obviously follow the law. Um, they obviously are quite keen. I think I think if funds were not constrained to the extent they are, that they certainly be far further down the sort of ESG path than, than, they, than they have been to date. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's an ongoing debate about, about uh, the, you know, the financial attractiveness of the returns that are offered based on ESG. And the other issue here, and we wrote about this, just my colleague and I, Graham Harmon, just in the AFI recently, and essentially there's a lot of money that is chasing uh, relatively, you know, relatively fixed amount of assets that are is in this space, and so we can't forget that the return experience that you that you you experience 
is it's a it's it's a direct function of what your entry pricing is into those assets. Mm. And if there's more and more money that is chasing a limited supply of say ESG type assets, then it's just going to bid the price up. And so, if you're thinking about the best financial interest for a member, actually having exposure at any price is not something that I would want to be part of a fund. So these considerations, I think, need to be need to be had. Um, and I think also when it comes sort of the the community, what's in the best interest of the community? Well, I think I think largely that's private savings. That's where you're not bound by the 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 uh, superannuation framework and the laws that underpin it. Uh, and that if you so wish to have your money invested according to your your um, your view of the world, and that's the vehicle that you directly can uh, can have oversight of. Yeah, this is actually an area where the zeitgeist has completely swung around over the last twenty years. Um, when I think back to the early two thousands, when you started to see SRI products coming out, being offered, being put on the menu for superannuation funds to choose, um, the, the, the debate back then was whether fiduciary duties even enabled trustees to even offer these products. Um, and people worked out that, well, of course it's all right to offer them. Um, now a lot of funds do and we've got seven. Uh, but, but today, like, whereas 20 years ago the, 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 the hand-wringing was over whether it was appropriate to even offer them, uh, where we are today is, is it appropriate not to offer them? Mm. It's been a, a great conversation, David and Luke. Thanks so much for participating. Thanks, Matt and Luke. Thanks for us. Thanks, Matthew. Great talking and good to see you again, David. Thank you.